Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast on the Genre Equality channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, this is not our first episode of the new year, but this is the first Genre Equality episode that we are recording in 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, excited about that. We have a lot of big things to talk about, including um, our main topic, which is, I think, in general, if you listen to Genre Equality for any amount of time, you know that The Expanse yeah. is what we consider to be top-tier sci-fi TV, mm-hmm. uh, at least of the modern era, and definitely of all the sci-fi shows that are currently airing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Expanse is right up there. We'll also be talking about the third season of uh, Star Trek Discovery, which, which featured a massive time jump. Yeah. Uh, we'll be talking about the final season of Common San Diego, uh, season four. Uh, we'll be talking about the His Dark, His Dark Materials, uh, second season, the final season of Chilling Adventures with Sabrina, um, Johan Johansson's uh, experimental sci-fi film, Last and First Band, which actually aired last year, but I just recently got a chance to catch it. I it sort of slipped my radar last year. I forgot about it. Uh, and, and lots of other things as well, man. Uh, what are you excited to talk about uh, this month, Faisal? I think our first two big topics are what I'm excited to talk about. like The Expanse and this new season. Uh, the penultimate one, if I'm not wrong, right? Penultimate, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, hopefully not, lah. But as it stands out, it is penultimate, yeah. Uh, and and definitely Star Trek Discovery. Like, I, I think there's quite a bit for us to kind of talk about there. Mm-hmm. Even the fact that you know, uh, at one point in time, Hardy and I were like, "Yes, Star Trek Discovery," and you were like, "No," and then now you know, mm. in topics. Uh, yeah. So yeah, we will definitely dive into that. I think come San Diego as well. Like our three kind of big topics uh, is it has quite a bit to unpack. So mm-hmm. uh, excited to dive into it. Yes, uh, so let's begin with, I mean, on, on a positive note, like, we like to begin on things that we really love. Yeah. Uh, and in this case, we'll begin with season five of The Expense, currently on Amazon Prime, you know. Um, as you mentioned, alluded to earlier, like, with the announcement last month that uh, Amazon Prime videos, The Expense will end after season six, which is the next season. It's kind of bittersweet for many fans, including myself, yeah. um, to see the true end of the show in front of us, or so it seems, you know. Yeah. Still, it's, it's a miracle that we got three more seasons of the show at all, considering Amazon's Hail Mary save after sci-fi's cancellation mm. post-season three. Yeah. Uh, season four, which was last season, the first move, uh, first after the move to Amazon, was a pretty ambitious change of pace. It was a terrestrial adventure taking place mostly on land, which gave the series a, a brand new look and feel, you know. But now in its penultimate fifth season, the expense, I would say, goes in another different direction, a direction that I never thought I would see the expense uh, go in again, uh, as it gets somewhat contemplative about the nature of family and survival and the politics of radicalization while simultaneously expanding its scope uh, while still getting more personal than ever. Of course, mm-hmm. the big thing I'm talking about in season five is the fact that the crew of the Rocinante are separated for the entirety of the season, uh, which is a new direction to take it. Uh, and, and, you know, like much of the attention initially spent directed towards the scattered members of the crew, la, each of whom are attending to personal matters in various parts of the solar system. Mm. Uh, only Holden and Naomi begin the season together, but it quickly becomes clear that the son, Philip, that we found out about last year will be the focus of a mission that the estranged mother must undertake alone. Uh, it's an attempt at a reconciliation that brings uh, heartfelt moments for Naomi. Uh, and and kind of great insight into the into the extreme fringes of Belter culture. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, Holden, Amos, Alex, uh, Bobby, uh, Kamina, Drummer, they're all on you know 
separate courses. Nobody has met up yet as far as uh, episode 9, which is the last episode that we saw. We have not seen the finale, but I think, you know, based on 9 episodes, we can give an accurate judgment of uh, how good the season is. Yeah. Uh, so far, I feel, although to varying extents, some I like more than others, but I feel like uh, the, the, the idea to, to separate the crew seems to have uh, paid, uh, paid dividends, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think... The cast, the the crew of the Rosinante have been so dynamic, right? Like the interpersonal relationships between them and all the adventures that they've been on. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that if they've gone through good or bad has always kind of like brought out the best and worst of them, right? And that is always a joy to watch, right? Just how deep their relationship runs and the things that they have to tackle and trying to kind of reconciliate their own kind of uh, world, um, universe views, worldview, mm-hmm. <laughs> depending on how you want to put it. Yeah. Um. This season, I I feel like we get a very interesting look at individual characters and individual character growth. Ah. Uh, mm. uh. Which I don't feel like we got as much of. Right. Uh. Mm-hmm. And, uh. It's so nice just to be able to see some of my favorite characters kind of like take on like more screen time, get a bit more of their backstory, about a bit more about what they're about. Um, I'm, there are obviously a couple of standouts. Amos continues to be my favorite, and together with Kamina Drummer, I think those are the two most compelling characters that we have. Uh, um, yeah, Amos has been MVP for the entire show, but Kamina Drummer sort of rose up through the ranks to become one of the favorites this year. I think. Yeah, I, I think with um with season four, uh, you know, with with a much bigger kind of starring role within the series itself, I, I think. The character of Kamina Drama has definitely become a fan favorite and one of my personal favorites as well. Such a mm-hmm. complex character. Uh, mm. what separating the crew has highlighted to me, though, is that there are some characters that are more well-written than others. Just in general, mm. right? And when they are together, you don't feel it as much. And I'm watching season five and I'm just thinking to myself, like, James Holden is really boring. Holden has always... I mean, no offense to... Uh, Holden, I guess uh, the actor who plays Holden. Yeah. I don't actually think it's the actor's fault. I just think that Holden has actually been the weakest point of the show, despite being the central point of the show. Right, like so, he has been by and large a walking plot vessel for mm. right. And mm-hmm. this season, I think him being isolated and kind of separate from everybody else that really, really kind of shows true, right? Uh, like even in the most kind of like compelling kind of character arcs, wasn't really about him. Right, it was more about Miller being in his head than anything else, mm. um, you know. And it it feels strange to me, like how obvious that is this particular season. Like, I could forgive that because everybody else is kind of like propping up what's going on in the ship itself, mm-hmm. with everybody kind of spread out and kind of pursuing their own things. Like Holden is kind of like twiddling his thumbs more or less, um, you know, for large swaths of the season. And and when I mean like I. I wanted to see more of everybody else, you know, and what was going on there, um, mm. than rather be stuck with him and 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 his bemusements of of what he's gone through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel, I feel, I feel the same exactly because Holden. Okay, like to be fair to Holden, right? At least I find him boring. Yeah, like that means he is in my head, right? Yeah, but he is by <laughs> no means the non-entity. The absolute zero impression that I have of Alex Kamal. Who I, I oh literally think I, I, I think of him like zero <laughs> yeah. time. You know? Even yeah. when he's on screen, I don't think about him. I think about Bobby who is beside him. Yeah. Thank God Bobby is there. Oh my god. Down, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I like how has he I mean, 
he's a pilot. So he's been flying under radar, like literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's not going to be around for season um, six or so, I hear. Right? Yep. Um, you know, I don't think I'm going to miss the character, really, because like the, the acting is pretty flat, um, for sure. Uh, I think he's been functional in the crew setting, but on yep. his own, right? Like we did get some stuff before he met up with, with Bobby. Yeah, family, yeah. Like, uh, like really? You know, mm. um, so I totally understand where you're coming from. Like, if there is a weaker point than then, you know, Holden's vanilla ness, yeah. um, then you know, uh, Alex Kamal is definitely it. Because in the end, right, vanilla is a flavor. Yeah, yeah. A- and Alex has no flavor, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, flavorless. So I'm I'm not really gonna miss him, like other than the fact that he's supposed to be some and I, I still don't understand how he in any way is an ace pilot given his history. Mm. Uh, but he ter- it turns out that he is, right? Um, it Other than that, it really doesn't... I, I don't understand his function, right? Like, he's not quite Martian, not quite a part of the crew, you know, mm. um, has like this kind of like family thing hanging over his head that he wants to resolve, doesn't want to resolve, you know? There's too much waffling going around for him mm. to be compelling in any measure, right? And it's so strange that um, in this particular season, at least, I feel like the tertiary characters are stepping up. A lot of the mm-hmm. secondary characters that we we know and love have have been growing substantially, and and he's just kind of fallen by the wayside. I would rank it as such. I think uh, number one, uh, most the the number one story that holds most interest to me is Amos. Number two is Kamina. Number three is Naomi. Yeah. Uh, and the rest are kind of just like eh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I do feel like Avatarala this season doesn't get as much of, of uh, screen time mm-hmm. um, for, for good reason, I, I think, you know, uh, as, as far as the story goes. And like, she has been a powerhouse for other seasons as well. Well, the whole story of Avatarala is her dealing with irrelevancy. And I think that's the idea of the season, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, she keeps getting back into the fold, getting thrown out of the fold. All the as she herself mentioned, she's burned all her bridges forward and backwards, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now she's dealing with that. Like, I think it's important for her to deal with that before we move forward. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But I mean, still, such a great character, right? Like she completely yeah. dominates the screen whenever she's on it. Um, but I, I it's so interesting just the direction that they've decided to take with this one. Definitely, uh, man. Um I Holden, of course, you know, he he's still an integral part of the plot. Like he's dealing with uh the 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 stealing of the proto molecule that yeah. was previously held by the belt, you know, and all of that, the belt of coup, uh by Marco Inaros, etc. Naomi is more closely tied with um Marco, obviously, like, due to their shared son, you know. Yeah. Um, Amos is back on Earth with his whole subplot, which I can only call the wire twenty seven. <laughs> Uh, we learn more about his criminal history, his backstory in Baltimore, uh, yeah. etc. You know, in, in fact, in the in the first couple of episodes, we see him like you know on the corner, uh, which is hilarious. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, where West Chetham's uh, acting is is just so quietly magnetic, mm. like, as this this absolute savage with no moral compass yet still trying to be a good person you know what i mean yeah uh and i think his dynamic with uh melba aka peaches uh really um uh, highlights that like his his kind of moral struggle you know yeah yeah i I think the dynamic between the two of them is pretty fascinating and it's been pretty fascinating playing out over the second half of the season Mm -hmm. um just like having this strange kind of like bedfellows right and they're talking about this whole thing where they're a tribe of two a very odd tribe of two i have to say Mm-hmm. Um, but just having that peek into into Amos's life is is like a kind of like a godsend. We've always 
had this huge air of mystery around him, right? Like, through everything. I think in season four, especially when he loses his sight and all of that, you know, he goes to a very, very dark place and you're trying to... It's sometimes difficult to kind of understand where he's coming from. Um, yeah. You know, like, it's so easy to write, like, a moody, kind of broody, um, ex-military type of character. Um, but I think, like, West Chatham and, and what he's done with the character is extremely compelling and it, it raises a lot of questions that I'm glad they answered in season mm-hmm. five. The danger of unveiling or unraveling an enigma uh, or a mysterious uh, broody character like uh, Amos is that it could go wrong. You know, it yeah. could it could end up being like uh, like Anakin, right? You mm, know? Yeah. Like you you you're like stripping back the mystique, or it could add layers to the character. And in the case of the expense, it added layers to Amos and and West Chatham. Uh, all due respect to whoever played Anakin Park, I forgot his name, Hayden Christensen. Yeah. Um, he's a much better actor. <laughs> uh, yeah. The Expense, you know, adds a great deal more stakes this season as well with uh, Marco's asteroid terrorist plot coming into focus, Naomi's uh, search for her son getting more exposure, uh, you know, Abbasarala's ineffectual political machinations behind the scenes, mm-hmm. uh, Bobby Draper trying to uncover treachery within the Martians' military, uh, Kamina drama, uh, quest for vengeance, as she leads a new crew. Um, I do have to shout out uh, Kamina's new crew as well, with oh, the limited yeah. screen time that they've gotten. Um, I think they've really stood out, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of it has to do with them casting like really likable faces in Kamina's crew. Yeah. Like I would, I would really just happily follow Kamina's crew if there is a, a, a spinoff. Yeah, such totally. as that, like, as, totally. we, as we mentioned, you know, the, the only awkward aspect of season five is is pr- pretty much Alex's return to Mars. You know, yeah. um, and considering the real life controversy around the actor, and perhaps you know some viewers would find discomfort watching him. Perhaps oh, it's best yeah. he doesn't return for season six, la. Yeah. You know, but but overall, if you know, if you want like a gritty sci-fi spatial, the expense is still the best out there. Uh, also shout out to um man, I have no idea who I, I slips, slips my mind. I know who he is, but the guy who plays Marco Inaros, probably oh. hands down the best villain the Expense has ever had. Yeah, easily, easily. It's such a stranger. Uh, I mean, we've got this kind of Machiavellian villain right on our hands. The first time that we're having like a, a someone of that that kind of character. Also, Killmonger as you know, like you kind of, you kind, you kind of see why he does things. You, yeah. I kind of root for him sometimes, you know. Yeah, but like, oh my god, so twisted, so sociopathic. It's, it's, it's really just kind of, um, it, it, like when you watch him on screen, right? Like the man is ridiculously handsome, you know. And there are moments where, when it suits him, his face, his features kind of like mellow out. You no, know, he shows kind of compassion. He becomes this really kind of charismatic leader who's strong and. And you know, sending out a, a message uh, on behalf of all the Baltawandas. But like there are these moments where he's just this terrifying monster, mm. right? Mm. And it go and he just switches between those so effectively that mm. it, it's so scary, right? And like his relationship with Philip and Naomi is just oh man, what a mess. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. One of the best dynamics of, of season five like, is the twisted family dynamic between yeah. Marco, Naomi, and Philip. Marco is I mean, a couple of things is that he cuts a great speech. He yeah. looks really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is just so infinitely charismatic. Uh and the thing that really scare that's really scary about Marco is that the things that he's saying are not wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Like his justification for essentially mass murder on a scale you know that we've never seen before like, on on the expense you know almost a cylon attack on on earth kind of kind of scale is at the end of the day kind of justified to be honest you know yeah um i can i, I may, maybe not entirely justified the, the killing of millions of innocent people but 
I we've seen for like five seasons, you know, like how the belters have been treated. Like, you know, when is enough enough, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, exactly. Like every individual belter, right? <clears throat> from yeah. Kamina's new crew yeah. um, and, and from Sin, who was actually such an underrated character this, this time around. Mm-hmm. You know, like all of them echo kind of the same sentiments. Like, I don't agree maybe with the way he's going about it, right? Yeah. Uh, but like, he has a point. You know, and and that's such a kind of like a dangerous thing, and I think what's going on with the Earth faction as well, or on the UN faction as well, like mm. for them to have made the decisions, we're not going to put any spoilers, but for them to have made the decisions that they've made, you know, mm. just further proves the point, right? Like it's a it's a no win situation right now. Like Marco has the entire solar system in the palm of his hand, you know, mm-hmm. and right now we're just stuck in this place where at least at episode 9 where we're just hoping the crew is going to get back together and do something about it. Yeah. Um, but it's, it feels like it might be too little too late, you know? Um, I, I, I agree, I agree. The only thing that could possibly unite all three, uh, I guess, planets or all three factions is, is an extraterrestrial invasion, uh, which I, I could see up. happening. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which they're kind of setting up, yeah. But, but it's important to set up the internal strife as well, like the political machinations of the expense. Mm. To be honest, is the show. Oh, the well, expense absolutely. is a political show, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and like, it's only, um, the political intrigue has only gone from strength to strength and in complexity, you know, as we've gone along. Like, no single player has all the answers. No single player has everything. Um, under their belt until now, right? Yeah. And that yeah. it completely changes the game, right? And everyone is just scrambling at the moment and it is so interesting to watch them deal with those things while facing their personal demons at the same time. Yeah, I mean, even with Earth, right? Like, their decision to strike back at the belt and stuff like that, it's it's wrong but entirely understandable. It proves Marco's point. Uh, it's a complex thing la, yeah. uh, to, to try to navigate nobody like the, the thing about the expense is nobody's completely right yeah nobody's completely wrong yeah. and and it's all everyone's functioning in a gray area uh, even marco yeah yeah even marco um and it's so it's refreshing to see avastrala as the voice of reason yeah one. yeah right. so often she's the most aggressive uh you know one yeah. yeah so it, it it it's been we're five seasons in still so good Right, we've gone like all sorts of ways and manners, you know. We've been to another another galaxy altogether. We've come back, right, and we follow these people all over the place. And you know, they've decided to change direction yet again, and it is still so good. Agreed, agreed. Uh, I do have to say though that um, Philip, right, is mm. such a disappointment to both his mother and father. Yeah, and I have, I have like, like. I don't like Philip. Nope. He he look he looks like such a weakling that that like he's neither here nor there, you yeah. know. Like just kid, pick a side. La. But I do understand that, you know, he's torn between the two. That's why he feels so weak. That's why he feels so unmoored. And you know, I, I to be honest, when I watch Marco berate him, break him down and then build him back up, you know, that manipulation of him. Mm, yeah. You know, like it, I feel for him like in, in moments like that. La. But at the end of the day, you know, like Philip is just Ugh. Yeah, I know. It's extremely annoying how quickly he switches, right? Yeah, like, oh, yeah. I, I, I get it. Right, writing wise, I get yeah. it. Character wise, it's just I don't like him. I don't know if it's a, it's the fact that we don't like, we don't know him. He's not of any measure to us prior to the season, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, there's no kind of like backstory there, and and all we get is this entire idea that okay, like it's between him, uh, between his parents, right? more yep. or less and it, it he he's a non-character 
you know, uh, and he's just like flipping to and fro. Like he's the MacGuffin, like essentially, right? Within that particular story out. Uh, and and both of them are just competing for that to to win him over. Uh, but it's really really annoying. I feel like because he doesn't have a backbone, <laughs> so to say, like yeah, it, yeah. It, it downplays that struggle between Naomi and Marco, right? Mm. Like there is no real price to be had uh, from them them clashing uh, mm-hmm. when the price is so meh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree lah. But you know, at, at the same time, I do feel that maybe like Philip will continue to develop perhaps next season. Yeah. But at this, at this point, like his wishy wash, his his wishy washiness, you know, and all of that mm. is explain. I can explain it away character wise. Like, you know, he's he's so torn between one way and the other way. His mother's way, his father's way. Uh, does you know? Does he want a good? What is the good thing? What is the right thing to do? He doesn't know like, he, that the yeah. internal conflict is what's holding him back. You know, mm-hmm. perhaps once he sees some clarity, then he can you know really take charge of himself. Uh, and it's easy to forget like that he's just you know a kid like, But at yeah. the moment, he's just you know one of those annoying kids, like, <laughs> uh, which so many shows has. Yeah. Like. Um, great casting I mean, though. He really looks the part. <laughs> he looks like their son. Yeah, he, he really. He, does. he clearly looks like half Arab, half black. Like, yeah, I mean it's. Spot on, spot yeah. on, you know. It's so good. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the yeah, like you know, we we love the expense. There are some weak points here and there, but mm. overall, it's it's just such a strong show. And and the gamble to split up to split the team apart, you know, the 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 team dynamic that's held the show together mm. for four seasons. Just the gamble to split them apart and to see what it's like without you know the comforting energy of the ensemble playing off each other. Yeah, like the fact that you know they 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 tried it and it worked, and we and not only does it work, we get to see each main character explore. Uh, the personal costs of their various crusades, mm. uh, um, and, and the costs of what happens after four seasons of saving the world. You know, yeah. we 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 get to see them take stock of what's truly important to them, whether it's Amos's morality or Naomi's family. You know, mm. um, so so this this that it happens to dovetail elegantly with with the broader implications of the show's overarching story is is icing on the cake as is super plotting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to to Anderson Dawes, who who mm. has been gone for a while, but like his presence still haunts us. Well it haunts Kamina at least. Um but like I really do miss him. Uh, yeah. you know, I really miss his character and what he brought to the table, especially in seasons three and four. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, like, it, I think it's a standout thing if your character is long gone, but like, still, you know, the audience kind of like feels his presence there. Definitely, man. Uh, and and you know, Fred Johnson also was in the season, also from the wire, uh, mind you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, um, a lot, of, a lot of the Belter leaders that haven't gotten um a, a ton of screen time over the past three seasons still like uh, stay in my head. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, all all of them are, are really quite superb. Like maybe with the exception of of uh Kamal and and Kes Anvar, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But this is excellent storytelling. Um, predictably the show looks as gorgeous as ever. You know, like I love the uh, the different production designs for the different places that we go to. Mm, you know? Yes. Like we we maybe we don't get the on location vistas like we did last season. You know, but yeah. like. The cinematographers do a bang-up job of differentiating the geography using a variety of aspect ratios to distinguish between a complex web of you know seven to eight different storylines mm-hmm. set across different moons, different planets, different ships, different stations. Yeah, know? yeah. I really, really enjoyed it. I do feel like in general, since they moved to Amazon, I think there's a bit more CGI money <laughs> uh, in, in general. I think we saw a lot of that in season four with the whole yeah. t- terrestrial thing. 
um, going on. But like, there's still some breathtaking moments, right? Like in each individual storyline, there are these breathtaking visual moments that are just kind of like, uh, you know, a, a sight to behold. Definitely, you know. Uh, what's uh, what's it been? What's been your favorite episode so far? Ooh, um, let me see. Uh, Keep in mind that uh, we have not seen the finale. We've yeah. only seen nine of ten episodes, so we're judging it based on that. I think I really enjoyed Tribe. Mm. Uh, you know, where it was just um, uh, Clarissa Amos Mao, and, yeah, and and yeah. Amos. Uh, yeah. Like, it is so far out from what I expected from The Expanse, right? I never mm. thought it would be on Earth. I never thought it would be in a setting like that. Uh, mm. And that was fascinating, right? Because, like, these two, uh, you know, these spacefaring kind of, like, uh, adventurers that have had their fair share, you know, they've had a history and all of that. But for them to be just be kind of, like, traversing the wild, you know, and and what's uh in that like it was I think it was pretty fascinating um uh, look at their characters right mm. um more so than anything else like how different it was really stood out to me. It was that it was that uh post apocalyptic trek through the wilderness you know like in the road something where Amos and Peaches are kind of forced to reckon with what kind of people they are yeah uh you know there is a particular scene at the ending where Amos does goes out of his way basically to 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 set up a situation to murder someone and to take his things. Yeah. Uh, and he realizes that, you know, it's something that Holden or Naomi or his crew would never have let him do. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, he understands that, you know, like, my moral compass are the people around me. Yeah. I, I need to get back like, to my crew. That's like, yeah. what he was saying, you know. Um, yeah. The, seeing Amos struggle with that. Yeah, at the same time, you know, Amos is a pragmatist. He's a survivalist. Yeah. He knows how to take care of himself. But he wants more than that. Like, he wants more than just to survive. He wants to be, you know, uh, a good person, which you know, yeah. uh, someone with his upbringing, as we are learning, is is hard to uh, reconcile with, lah. Yeah. Uh, totally. Uh, for me, my favorite episode was, uh, I think, in episode eight, primarily because I don't want to spoil anything, now, But mm. primarily because we have this long sequence that is very um Vince Gilligan esque, <laughs> yeah. very very Better Call Saul mm. or Breaking Bad esque, where we see Naomi doing something. Yeah. For the entirety of the episode, without like auditory ex exposition about what she's doing. We just see her trying to do something and, and we're trying to figure out what she's doing. You know, yeah. it's, it's classic, like Better Call Saul or Breaking Bad, like show, don't tell kind yeah. of storytelling mm -hmm. that like, I haven't seen the expense do, but it did very well here. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, like I was pretty riveted during that sequence, right? Like mm -hmm. just because it was, it felt extremely visceral. Um, mm -hmm. Already uh, how she got there, right? It was just like, what? Seriously? Mm. Are, are you kidding me? Uh, yeah. You know, and then for her to go to such lengths, right? Because so much is at stake uh, with mm. what she can do in that moment, uh, you mm -hmm. know, and, and just the length in, in which she goes just to, to get those things done is yeah. really quite something. Like, it really shows, I, I was very, very impressed um, with her performance in uh, Dominic Tipper's performance for that particular episode. It was quite mind-blowing. Yeah, definitely, you know, and, and just the way that it was it was uh shot, written and, and everything, you know, like dialogue lights. Uh mm. yeah, like like you say, like, it's very Vince Gilligan and, and I'm I'm super down for that. Mm -hmm. Um I, I, I even Googled like you know how, how feasible it is that Naomi survived heart vacuum. Apparently it is, uh, uh scientifically. Apparently you can survive for a couple of minutes and yeah, yeah. Plus, plus you know, you shares the oxygenated oxygenated blood that she Yeah, which which away. they brought it on like like in episode one, right? The hyperoxygenated blood. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, okay lah. I can believe that. Like, the yeah. only thing that I don't believe about The Expanse, which is supposed to be a hard sci-fi show, yeah. uh, the only thing I don't believe is like Amos' uh, post-apocalyptic fate, which, how does he maintain that? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Probably, probably with, a, with a hunting knife uh, and a mirror. <laughs> what I'm getting. Like, his beard, right, is, is always perfect. You know? uh, yeah, yeah, he, perfect fate, perfect beard. You know, he's it's like he goes to a barber that he found somewhere in the woods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, it it's so strange because usually, like with, with TV and, and movies and stuff like that, like it's the 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 women have like this amazing hair. You know, yeah. they've got perfect makeup all the time, no matter what. Like this particular season, at least the women are not in good shape, right? They're not looking mm. good on screen. But Amos, regardless of what he's doing, whether he's fighting off people or has got blood on him or, you know, going to a maximum security prison, like, mm-hmm. I mean, he, he he looks picturesque and that to me is just so strange. I know, yeah. He's uh, he's very old school action hero. Like, in the way he's being presented. <laughs> not that I mind, you know, it fits Amos's character perfectly. Yeah, like. yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, before we cap it off, you know, like any final thoughts, and then uh, what are your ratings? Oh, uh, um, okay. I'm really looking forward to to next uh, next week's episode. Um, mm-hmm. I do feel that for once, episode nine wasn't as impactful as we expect it to be. Yeah, typically episode nine is the climax, and episode ten is like the the epilogue. Yeah, so we didn't really get that with episode nine. Um, well, I guess today, right? Uh, as of the yeah. time of the recording, um. So I I'm curious to see what they what's so big that they had to save the entire next episode for it for definitely right uh what kind of cliffhanger we're gonna be left on which uh, it's a definite for sure mm-hmm. uh I have a feeling that you're right and that they're gonna have to introduce a outside threat next week uh next week mm-hmm. uh. That just like pales everything into comparison, and then they'll have to kind of figure that out. Uh, they've kind of done it before, right? Like the initial was it season two, like when the proto molecule arc was kind of finishing. Um, mm-hmm. That's where they kind of had to band together, you know, uh, differences aside and all of that. But so yeah. much has happened since then, so I'm I'm wondering if they go through a similar story arc, whether or not that that's going to change. Uh, whatever happens, I hope Marco does not die. Uh, love Marco too much. I think he has value to the show, even yep. as and uh, as an unlikely ally. Even you know, yeah. Um, yeah. as a Hannibal Lecter esque, we gotta work with him. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm I'm so down with Marco. I love the guy who plays him. I yep. think you know, like on the flip side of of the antagonist side, like yeah. Marco, Marco has uh, jumped right to the top. You know. Uh yeah, um so I'm gonna rate this season so far. Uh and an eight out of ten, very strong season. Yeah, it's an eight out of ten for me as well. Uh there are, you know, little little things that we pick on, but I mean I mean, man, like Expanse has been strong for five seasons, so mm-hmm. there's very little to complain about. Yeah, uh from one spacefaring show to a different spacefaring show, we're gonna talk about season three of Star Trek Discovery. Uh so after Commander Burnham goes into the wormhole at the end of the, the second season finale. Season 3 of Star Trek Discovery finds the crew of the USS Discovery landing in, in, in a far future, 930 years from now, uh, at least from then, uh, <laughs> in, uh, far from the home that they once knew, uh, into the 32nd century. Uh, now living in a time filled with uncertainty, the Discovery crew, along with the help of uh, some new friends, uh, must work together to restore hope to the Federation. Yep. Uh, now, finally... Discovery is, I think, finally boldly going where no Star Trek show has gone before. <laughs> uh, 
Um, this is the furthest into Trek's prime universe canon that we've ever seen, uh, opening up you know tons of fresh possibilities. We're no longer stuck in prequel territory. Yeah. Um, you know, prequels are fine, but you are kind of handicapped about what you about what you can and can't do. You mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. So so season three functions as sort of a soft reboot for the show. So rather than filling in the gaps of where others have been before. They're finally able to grow unfettered by entrenched canon uh, into a series that will succeed or fail as a Star Trek show on its own merits, yeah. not relying on Enterprise nostalgia or TNG nostalgia, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it's it's like old Star Trek now, like they can make funny, <laughs> like find new things, you know, they even have their own cats, which is like a Star Trek thing. Um, so yeah, okay, so to set the scene, the galaxy mm-hmm. is a much different place, 930 years from now. Yep. Uh, the questions are, what happened to the Federation? Uh, what caused a massive disaster known as the Burn? Uh, when in the 31st century, nearly all dilithium suddenly exploded, killing millions of people and effectively ending warp travel. Yep. So thanks to the Burn, the Federation is virtually non-existent now. Presumably having disintegrated into protectionism uh, in the face of the ensuing uh, resource crisis, mm-hmm. you know. Um, outside the Central Mysteries, Discovery is finally able to kind of return to Trek's roots of kind of exploration, I guess, finding out what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, the, the, the idea that the ship has to go out there and make friends and build bridges, not fight battles, is quintessential Trek. Um, and, and now that everything... Uh, is kind of new. It's teased that we can we can go back to this. You can back. We can go back to what makes track track. You know. Yeah. Um, even familiar planets like Vulcan, like Trill, like Earth, are drastically different. Mm. So we we can go and find out how their culture, politics, and religions have changed, opening up whole new dynamics. You know, we find Earth to be isolationists. We find the Trills, you know, from from DS Nine and their whole symbian culture. Uh, they've been crippled by the burn as well. Yeah. Uh, from Enterprise, uh, eternal enemies, Orions and the Andorians have uh are friends now and, and are running a crime syndicate called the Emerald Chain. <laughs> um, the Vulcans have uh, merged with their ancestral cousins, the Romulans. Yeah. Uh, we, we, in an episode entitled Unification Part Three, which which is actually great because uh, if you watch TNG, uh, then you know because Unification's Part One and Two are there. Yeah. Uh, it follows uh, Spock's journey to try to unite the Romulans and Vulcans. So I like that it's titled Unification Part Three. Mm-hmm. Essentially, a sequel. Uh, we find out that Burnham's mom is alive and part of the Coat Millat uh, order that we 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 found out about in Picard. Uh, the space-time deities, the Guardians of Forever from the original series, um, are, are hiding out, apparently. Uh, and the temporal war from Star Trek Enterprise apparently escalated to an extent that time travel is now banned. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting bits of canon that they've weaved in into Season 3. Uh, and this is stuff that just digs into the ex- existing law. La. So, you know, there are new planets, new species, new technology, new cultures that can be introduced to. Uh, so much potential. It's so sad that they wasted all of it. I, uh, I mean, there were a lot of moments in this particular season of Discovery that were great, right? Mm. So many moments that, like, I, I think the performances or, you know, just really kind of carried it in that moment. Uh, mm. But I, my main issue is that so many of those moments weren't earned by the series mm. in general. Right, like for me, the biggest kind of like example of that is the whole Philippa Giorgio, Emperor Philippa Giorgio's arc, redemption mm-hmm. arc, right? That we got um, from those three particular episodes. Um, they were fun, 
and and I think they were resolved in in one of the most kind of like powerful we've seen on Discovery, right? Mm. Um, just between the moments between Philippa and and Michael, um, but at no point in time over any of the seasons prior to this, they, they set that up mm-hmm. for it to have a significant payoff, right? Mm-hmm. So what's the point of having those moments, like? Uh, whether it's in Unification Tree, right? Which which is great, you know, like it's a throwback. It, it gives uh, a lot of like emotional resonance and depth uh, to the fact that, you know, Burnham, Burnham and Spock's relationship, right? Mm-hmm. To the original series as well. Uh, mm-hmm. But so little of that gets set up, right? Mm-hmm. We are, Much like Discovery, we are thrown into this new world where there are consequences and those consequences are important and lasting. But... Uh, they they just find themselves in it, you know. Like there isn't enough um, work that's being done for that to pay off in a way that is emotionally satisfying for for uh, the viewer. Mm. Yeah, the most emblematic, like you were saying, so many moments are unearned. Uh, it's emblematic that uh, that uh, an ensign uh, is promoted to captain uh, in Tilly. Uh, that is the real microcosm of what discovery yeah. is. Yeah, uh, it does little to nothing to, to write the potential that it created for itself. You know, mm. It did such a good job of creating potential and then waste it all. As I said, in the beginning, right? Yeah. It will succeed or fail on its own merits now. It has thoroughly failed. Um, again, it leads into battle and action and Mary Sue tropes. Um, Star Trek is not an action-averse series because sometimes conflict is inevitable, but yeah. fights are always a last resort for Trek which is why big battles only happens maybe once a season, twice at most. Mm. Now every episode has a shootout, a space battle, a bar fight or whatever. Like, don't get me started on the, on the atrocity of a finale, which <laughs> makes J.J. Abrams' track look uh. like fucking like uh, Gene Roddenberry. The, the thing is, like, at first I kind of liked that they lean into Michael's uh, individualistic slash selfish yeah. by nature yeah, yeah you know mm-hmm. she's annoying and hateable and selfish and 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 drives star trek fans nuts with her with the kind of reckless proactiveness that captain kirk would be startled by mm. um but but at least right she's consistently written like yeah. that is her yeah that's a character and it has been since episode one i may not like it but that's her yeah uh it's a character trait and i'm okay with that so what i thought was good the show was going to eventually lead to a point where she faces the consequences of her blind luck, me first approach to leadership, you know, mm-hmm. she, you know, just, just, you know, everything like so selfish and, and mostly it works out because of blind luck. In the end, what really got me the, hating the show was that she was rewarded for it, right? She didn't face the consequences of it. She was rewarded it by being promoted captain. Yeah. Goodness, you know, uh, overall, I, I, I do wish there was more thoughtful debate and, and, and less bang, bang, boom, boom things, you yeah. know, all the ethical, philosophical, legal, cultural, or religious dilemmas that they present in their Alien Planet of the Week episodes can barely be called dilemmas because they're so easily solved mm-hmm. and so lamely constructed. That really suggests to me that, that these modern writers of Star Trek Discovery lack the intellectual curiosity uh, and thoughtfulness of previous track writing themes, which is unfortunate. La. Yeah, yeah. I think the most track moment that we got right yeah. was in the negotiation room 
I was gonna, I was just gonna say that like right. the shining exception was Osiris' negotiations with Admiral Vance. Yeah, and you see, the problem is those aren't even two main characters. Yeah, know? they're not two main characters. We have absolutely very little idea of what they are referring to or talking about because the series has set up so little of that, or has explained so little of what the Emerald Chain is about, of what mm-hmm. you know the Federation's current structure is, and and how they're kind of like just surviving there, right? Like it is so. Michael and Discovery centric, uh, but for for by and large, right? That it's such a wasted moment. That was such a powerful scene. It was it was really really well done. It it was pure track. That scene yeah. between Emerald Vance and Osira was pure track. Sitting at the table negotiating, what kind of compromises can you make morally and yeah. politically? And are, are you willing to make those compromises? The can the desperation of scarcity outweigh morality? Mm-hmm. Um, can uh, you know, like Osara is uh, um, agreeing to outlaw slavery and walk back her quote unquote plundering of innocent pre warp civilizations. Yeah. In exchange, the Federation will share discovery, spore, drive technology, uh, so that the Admiral Chain no longer needs the lithium. You know, this whole like back and forth. Uh, what can we give you? What can you give us? Compromise or not? Pure track. Yeah. The, the like five minute thing la, that I thought you know was great. You know? Yeah. And and then like it kind of devolves into this this massive space battle in the finale, which made me so sad. La. Yeah. And I mean like for all of that, right? To hinge on Michael's appeal to emotion, right? Mm. Like it constantly boils down to that at the end of the day, right? Like for for someone who who was raised Vulcan, like oh my god, seriously. Yeah, you know, yeah. she constantly just appeals to emotion, and that's something like even her own mother gives her shit for, mm. which, which was an amazing. <laughs> that was the dressing down that she got was amazing. Her mother uh, is pure human, man. You. Yeah, exactly right, and like yeah. um, that entire sequence, you know, on Navarre, right, where where she has to go through the entire thing, like her, she didn't learn that lesson. Mm. You know that her mom was trying to teach her, like she didn't learn that lesson, and she goes on to flip everything on its head again because of the exact same thing like she hasn't paid the price for all the consequences for some of the things that that she's decided to do right or the way she's decided to do that now I'm not so hard up about the fact that she's promoted to captain as a reward if anything I think her come up is incoming right okay Uh, I feel like what they set up with her now strained relationship with Stamets is going Mm. to show Right, I do feel like her not having Jojo around anymore to kind of play off uh, and enable her essentially is going to show. Right, I yeah. feel like um, as problematic as Tilly being promoted to 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 the to the com, she's a way better captain than than Michael. No, exactly right. But yeah. she had her moment to shine, and she did pretty well. Right, mm-hmm. so there are all these moments in time. I feel though that they're setting up the fact that. Uh, okay, so a large part of her Michael's journey this time around is the fact that she doesn't feel at home in Discovery anymore for the first half of the season, yeah. right? I I have a feeling that it's going to continue to be that. That realization is going to dawn upon her as we go along. So I'm not too hard up about the fact that she's captain now, right? I love Saru. Don't always agree with Saru. Saru as captain did a decent job but had his failings, right? Mm-hmm. Him stepping out of the way now, right? Mm-hmm. Him not being there as you know, Michael's kind of voice of reason, uh, also, right, seems to set up a similar thing, right? She's yeah. she's now where she's always believed she should be, whether or not she cares to admit it to herself, right? Mm-hmm. From from the very beginning, right? You wouldn't 
mutiny against your captain if you didn't think that you could do a better job, right? And that's mm-hmm. happened multiple times over multiple seasons. Now that she's yep. captain, she's going to get the brunt of it is where I think this is going to go. I'm hoping that it's going to go that way. Uh, otherwise, like, it's, it, it's just really sad, right? Especially this season, like, there were just many points in time where they build up, build up, build up, and it goes yep. nowhere. Or out of the blue, you have this brilliant moment that's not supported, not earned, you know, and doesn't doesn't come off with, with the payoff that it's supposed to have, right? Like, it's it's a waste. I, I agree, you know. Um, Michael as captain is going to be as lame as her catchphrase, which is, let's fly, uh, which is, you know. Yeah. I do love know, that I, episode where Saru was trying to figure that out, though. That was one of my favorite. Well, every, every, every captain needs needs a catchphrase, and, and, you know, and let's fly, let's say, it's just miles below engaged, like, for example. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty sad, you know. Um, you know, uh, I think, like, thankfully, Saru, Tilly, Stamets, and the rest of the crew are kind of around to balance Burnham uh, with their kind of warmth and kindness and yeah. their think-before-they-act worldview that makes them consummate track characters. Mm. The sad part is that, you know, none of them really uh, are given a shiner because it's such the, the Michael show. There, there's never been a Star Trek show that is so one character centric. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've never seen a Star Trek show like that. Even Picard wasn't wasn't just <laughs> Picard, and the, the fucking show was named after him. You know. Yeah. Um. So this season of Discovery puts a whole lot of moments that don't hit because, as you mentioned, the narrative didn't earn them. The exploration that I was talking about was put on the back burner once again. Mm. But Burns' mystery concluded oh, in the dumbest... Um, no spoilers, but it was just so fucking uh, dumb. The dumbest way possible. Yeah. Uh, Michael continues to be emblematic with what's wrong with the selfishness and entitlement of modern Trek, uh, which is why I guess modern... At least this particular writing team does not understand how to write Trek stories. Um, you know, I... Don't get me wrong. Star Trek has always had issues with the first couple of seasons. They're always mediocre to bad. Yeah. You know, season one and two is always like, okay, it's getting there. Season three is when it really flies. Mm. This is worrying because this is the first season three I've seen from any track show that, that kind of sucked. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, oh man, uh, I, I really don't know um, how they're going to do it next season, right? If this is really what they're going to set up and it's going to be a shit show for Michael next season. Mm. Though I doubt it, right? Like, so many of the supporting characters that made Michael bearable are gone, mm-hmm. right? So, Rue's out of the picture. Jojo is out of the picture. Mm. Uh, our Her new love interest, Booker, is is about as 2D as it gets. Yeah. And through no fault of the actor, it's just the way he's written. Now. Yeah, it's just the way he's written. I mean, like, I understand he's supposed to be an empath, da-da-da-da-da-da, you know. Uh, he, he's, 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 he, he's a good character, right? Like, mm. in the sense that morally, he is good. Uh, as far as we can tell, uh, but yep. he lacks depth, and we don't, we haven't got anything from him yet. Mm-hmm. You know, so like with all of these things, it really kind of sets up the fact that at the end of the day, the strongest personalities on Discovery right now, right, is Michael, and she's going to continue mm-hmm. to dominate unless Tilly steps up to the plate or Stamets, you know, uh, steps up to the plate. Um, and yeah, like I don't feel like that's enough to carry the show anymore. You know, I agree. Uh, yeah. so I I'm gonna say that the section nine show, thirty one. Oh, uh, section thirty one. Oh, uh, yeah, the like thirty one show. It's might be far more interesting of a track show, uh, than what Discovery has shown us this season. Section thirty one is essentially as a faction, as a group. They are anti federation morals, you know. Yeah. So 
perfect for these modern writers, lah. You know, yeah. so at least you're not you're not going to disgrace Federation philosophy or whatever. You know, that, that's the whole point of Section Thirty One. Yeah. The gray area. It's it's Jack Bauer shit, lah. <laughs> uh, so so they can do it there with Giorgio, and it will be fine with me. You know? Yeah, exactly. You know, as I, as I keep saying, you know, like. I I don't know. This just isn't track for me, lah. Yeah. And I I don't I don't understand why why this is the track show right now. You know, it's it just it's not. There's nothing about it that feels track at all. Mm. Yeah. And even even if Star Trek wasn't attached to the show, I still wouldn't think it's a good show. Hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially this particular season. Especially this particular season. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Like, I I mean, like it's such a waste to to. Uh, so, the premises that they came in into this season were so promising, right? Mm-hmm. You get a clean slate. You have some really good actors and some decent actors, right? Mm-hmm. And then you just kind of like, mm, you, you kind of piss it away, mm. you know? And it is so sad to see that happen, right? Like, I've been rooting for Discovery to grow into the show that not only brought in new track viewers, but also had like like what the Mandalorian is doing, essentially, right? Mm. Right? You you pay homage to what came before and you stay true to that, but at the same time, right, you appeal to this whole new generation of viewers um because of, of the way that you approach it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh I, I had hoped that Discovery would end up being that way. But with this season, like I don't think it's going to No, it's not. I mean yeah. the 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 hope right now is either for the Section Thirty One show or the Strange New Worlds show that is following Captain Pike, yeah, or or or, or Picard season two lah. Those are the the only hopes lah. I've yeah. kind of, I kind of thrown away Discovery, uh, or already lah. I mean, I I was inclined to like for several years, you know, but people kept you know asking me to watch it, so okay, you know. But I feel like three seasons is more than enough chance to have mm-hmm. given it. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. This is. Man, like I'm, I'm rating it very harshly because I'm a Star Trek person. I've seen every Star Trek show, uh, I've seen every Star Trek movie, I've seen every Star Trek episode. Very purist. It's probably the nearest and dearest franchise to my heart. Uh. That's mm. why I'm rating this a one out of ten. Ooh, wow! I'm giving it a five out of ten. Okay. Yeah, like it's just barely like you can watch it, you can have fun with it. It's not great, mm. right? So I, I'm giving it a barely pass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just. Yeah, I I come from a different place. Uh. It's it's an emotionally driven rating, yep. not a not not entirely object uh, objective, but you know, like no, totally understandable, totally. Yeah, understandable. yeah. I I echo most of the Star Trek message boards as as toxic as it's become because of Discovery. Everyone is just so negative these days. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I yeah. I'm I. You have every right to be that negative, like, You know. Uh. Anyways, yeah. That was Star Trek Discovery season three. Uh, when season four comes along, I I, I saw probably review it if yeah, you can. Uh, yeah. But I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. I understand. <laughs> okay. Uh. Next up, let's go to the fourth and final season of one of our favorite kids cartoons on Netflix, uh, which is Carmen San Diego. If you're a regular listener, you know that uh, this show has consistently received uh, high marks from us. Uh, mm. It's been a stylish and and enormously fun uh, espionage. Uh crime keeper romp for all ages. Uh, it follows the titular Master Thief and her sidekicks as she foils the plans of evil criminal organization Vile. 
Um, the series never fails to deliver an abundance of you know slick heists, daring capers, and compelling character dynamics. But but beyond the capers, one of the best aspects of the show is that it admirably retains its educational roots, mm. you know, teaching its young audience about the cultures uh, and history of various uh, countries, you know, from geography, art, and traditions. Uh, du- during every stop on Carmen's uh, globe-trotting adventures, in this final season, Carmen and her friends race against time to fraud. Uh, to, to uh, thwart uh, vile schemes for good. Yep. Uh, on top of that, she's going to have to operate without a vital member of a team player who has to leave temporarily uh, to go to school. Uh, she also finds unexpected new allies as uh, Chase Devenu, uh, the, the acne agent that's been chasing <laughs> her, finally comes around to believing that Carmen is uh, on the side of good. Uh, yeah, so uh, what do you think about the final season of Carmen San Diego? Uh, I... I... I'm I'm glad they kind of paid off a lot of the plot points that they did in season three, right? Like with her trying to uncover what's going on with her family, you know, her father and then her mother as well. I'm glad that finally played out. I, I think like that was a kind of really good way um for it to wrap up, right? Mm-hmm. Um I do feel that there were certain portions, uh certain flips in the story, especially with the whole like memory wipe thing, were a bit annoying to me. Mm-hmm. Because you couldn't just explain it in a way. I think Grey in particular was a bit problematic uh, in a couple of episodes, just the way that he kind of flips here and there because he's trying to like reconcile like who he was and who he is. That wasn't really quite convincing. Uh, I had a ton of fun uh, with them going around with this whole like ancient artifact thing. Mm. I really, really kind of enjoyed that. Uh, I like the fact that uh, as much as it's called Carmen San Diego, that a lot of our secondary characters get a lot of uh, airtime uh, and and development there. Um, and uh, it's especially nice that Singapore was mentioned uh, this in this season. Uh, we didn't get a whole episode though. We only got half an episode. Yeah, we got me out. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, like. Ugh, it's better than nothing, you know. It, it it's always interesting to see Singapore represented in animation form. Yeah, right. shout out to the, art, to the Art Science Museum, I guess. Yeah, Art Science Museum and then some of the super trees. Uh, yeah. You know, um, what was it? Great Pretender also recently did uh, an entire, like, half a season in Singapore as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, I, I, all, all in all, I really, really enjoyed it. I do feel like this time around, it, was, it didn't feel at, nearly as educational uh, yeah. as previous seasons just because they needed more time to move the plot forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, with everything that was going on, um, yeah, but like just like just oodles of fun, right? Like a lot of twists and turns, a lot of mystery, a lot of like capers to solve and 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 uh, evil machinations to to unfurl. Um, mm-hmm. and it really four seasons in, it still really really reminds me of what it felt like to play the game. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, uh, and, and that to me is amazing, right? Like, bringing in totally new things, totally new characters, new stories, new backstories, new contexts, uh, new adventures, uh, but it kept to this very, at its core, right? This interesting kind of, like, detective story mm. that uh, drew me to the game and, and, and continues to, to um, draw me to this, this franchise. I agree. Um, it, it still remains enormously fun, but somewhat flawed la, final season. Mm. Yeah, a bit of issues uh, net plotting wise. Yeah. Uh, but I think on the whole, I like you know, I think kids won't really pay that much attention to stuff like that. Yeah. It's only like for adults. Uh, yeah. So I think you know, like on the whole, I'm probably rating the final season a seven out of ten. Yeah. Uh, how about you? Yeah, I'm gonna give it a seven out of ten. I I do feel like there were a lot of things to kind of pick on. Um, the the third, 
the last third did feel a bit rushed into mm. the climax of the show. Yeah. Um, you know, but um it's 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 all right, it's okay, you know. Like I think the way that they ended it all, uh just to kind of wrap up the the, the all the uh, the series itself is uh it's it's nice, right? Like it's a great adventure. Um you follow for four seasons, you've learned some stuff along the way, mm-hmm. and you've had a lot of fun, and like you can't really ask for anything more than that, right? Like yeah. certainly it's not again, right? We are living in the golden age of animation, uh and 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 kids. Um, you know, kids' cartoons are becoming so much more than that. Uh, Common San Diego does not reach those heights, not even close, I think. No, nope. um, yep. but it is good. It's good and mm. it's fun. And and you know, my nephew loves it, and I love watching it with him. And like, you can't ask for more than that, really. Definitely, like in the in the in the top tier of children's animations for for twenty first century, I guess mm. Common San Diego doesn't fall into it. But in terms of top tier for children's animations on Netflix, yeah. It's probably top tier there, like, alongside maybe Kipo, maybe Shira, mm. and things like that. You mm. know, uh, I I think it falls behind Shira, but it's about the same level as Kipo. Yeah, yeah, I would I would think that it's it's around there. It's around there, you know. Um, yeah. like as far as all the stuff that's on Netflix, you know, uh, that's accessible to kids, right? These days, like mm-hmm. yeah, there's very kind of little to complain about. Like it, the animation is stylish, you know, the voice acting is great, the music is great, all the research that they do is on point, um, and like. It's just something I would, if you have kids in your life, you know, whether your own or for other people, and they have Netflix around and they're able to watch, I would highly recommend you check out Come San Diego. Maybe yeah, you will learn a thing or two <laughs> together with them. Definitely, man. Uh, yeah, so it's a 7 out of 10 for us. Uh, if you have not seen Come San Diego, you can watch all four seasons now, including an interactive uh, choose your own adventure game on Netflix, which I encourage you to do as well. Mm. Uh, next up, we'll be del- delving quickly into quick hits where I talk about some of the stuff uh, that Michael Hulse might or might not have seen. If he has seen any, you know, feel free to jump in. Uh, I'm going to begin quick hits with uh, His Dark Material Season 2, uh, which begins after Lord Azrael has opened a bridge into a new world uh, and destroyed over the death of her best friend, Lyra follows Ezreal into the unknown. Uh, in a strange uh, and mysterious abandoned city, she finally meets Will, a boy from our world who is also running from a troubled past. So Lyra and Will learn that their destinies are tied uh, mm. to reuniting Will with his father, but find that their path is constantly um, thwarted uh, as a war begins to brew around them. Uh, meanwhile, Mrs. Coulter searches for Lyra, determined to bring her home by any means necessary. Now, while I overall liked season one, it was not a great show. Yeah. Um, the HBO drama dragged at times due to stiff dialogue and an uneven story. But despite the show's flaws, it still managed to, I guess, captivate me with fantastic visuals and convincing performances. Uh, His Dark Materials already had the building blocks to to potentially improve. Mm-hmm. Uh, tonally, the second season, similar to the first, it's fanciful, it's weighty, but there's a sense of impending doom simmering in the background. And best of all, it looks even better now. Um, this is a visually impressive show. Unfortunately, while season two remains entertaining, the show sometimes lacks a sense of fear or excitement or passion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, sadly, a key element of it is that James McAvoy's uh, Lord Asriel is not in season two because uh, COVID-19 uh, drastically altered uh, production logistics mm. to the point where McAvoy just couldn't make it in time for, for, for the shoot. Oh, wow. So existing, yeah, so existing footage had to be modified. They already had shot a season. 
they were expecting him to come in later and shoot uh, you know the additional scenes and all he couldn't make it so the existing footage had to be edited post to create a narrative without him you know what so, okay yeah yeah what 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 a challenge right you know um i i'm sure that there must have been a giant pain in the ass and contributed greatly um, to the to the terrible pacing and momentum of the season, um, season two it, it isn't bad. In fact, it is a slight improvement in season one. Mm. There is spectacle and magic and wonder here that season one sometimes fails to present, but it misses opportunities. I because of COVID, and I guess it is what it is. Like, you know, like, yeah, you know, can't help can't help it. Like, so it's a six out of ten for me. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I, I was hoping it would pick up, but oh well. Yeah, yeah, but you know, production issues, uh, what to do. Uh, next up, I'm going to talk about Last and First Man, which is the final project of Icelandic composer Johan Johansson before mm-hmm. he passed away in 2018. Uh, of course, we all know his soul-stirring scores from films like Sicario, Arrival, Mandy, uh, but this is a whole different project altogether. Uh, Last and First Man, which Johansson directed as sort of a live multimedia performance. It's, it's more of a concert thing prior to his death has been posthumously completed as a singular 70-minute sci-fi movie instead. Mm. Um, The film draws its concept from Olaf Stapleton's 1930s speculative sci-fi novel in which the survivors of an advanced society two billion years in the future sends a note documenting their utopia and the imminent destruction of that utopia in a cosmic memo to the distant past. Uh, So Stapleton's book details multiple eras of human evolution. Uh, Johan Johansson consolidates the unconventional narrative into a into a, like a 70-minute essay documentary mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's a fictional documentary of sorts that's rich with uh, existential contemplation. Uh, it's guided by Johansson's ethereal score uh, and this dazzling apocalyptic immersion kind of blends cosmic 16mm black and white images of Yugoslavian architecture with a deadpan like Tilda Swinton voiceover, um, resulting in this kind of profound lyrical rumination on the end of days, you know, mm-hmm. what they have achieved and, and, and what they have wasted. Um, Last and First Man doesn't adhere to a story in a traditional sense, but once the premise settles in, it guides the viewer through several haunting chapters. Uh, in Johansson's telling, humanity has obtained utopia and immortality, but bears little resemblance to humanity's roots. Uh, Swinton's voiceover includes intricate details about, you know, the bizarre simian features of this future race, how they've evolved. They have magnifying lenses uh, affixed to their foreheads and a ritual that involves a 20-year pregnancy followed by an infancy that lasts for 100 years and things like that. Technology has progressed to inconceivable extremes including telepathy and deep space travel, Mm -hmm. all of which Swinton um, explains in measured tones. You know, and that kind of reminds you like what if Dr. Manhattan was narrating a documentary? Um, <laughs> it is is a haunting, poignant, and highly experimental audiovisual effort uh, from one of the great composers of our time. It is now showing in the projector. If you want to catch it, I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, next up, I'm going to talk about part 4 of Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Uh, <laughs> final part. Uh, now that, you know, we back when we reviewed season 1, it was years ago, right? Yeah. We were... We were intrigued by the potential of the show, Hail Satan and all that. Uh, <laughs> since then, we've been lukewarm as the show continued to lose our interest. So how does season four climax? Uh, with a mediocre whimper, I guess. Um, 
the season kind of finds Sabrina and her allies trying to fight eight Lovecraftian eldritch horrors, terrors, you know, monsters, mm-hmm. which conveniently appear at a rate of uh, one per episode. Um, <laughs> Uh, Sabrina has has been at its best when it deals with a contained Monster of the Week style plots, and the final season kind of leans into that formula with a series of cool monsters. You know, there, there is the Weird, which is a primal aquatic parasite that wants to strip humanity of free will. Yeah, uh, it, it's sort of like the DC villain Starro. Uh, there's a, a monster called the Uninvited, which is the manifestation of every folktale that results in people being punished for failing to show kindness to a stranger. Uh, however, the show is kind of messy, uh, and the final stretch is very chaotic, which highlights both the show's strengths and glaring weaknesses at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's a show with way too many characters put in too many different directions. And while all of them are interesting, none of them are developed well. For every cool satanic subplot, there is an eye-rolling, inducing, you know, uh, high school love triangle kind of thing. Um, the finale really doesn't do justice to any of its overstaffed ensemble. All of, all of them are pretty good, actually. Um, but the writing doesn't do them justice. Mm-hmm. You know? But The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina was never a perfect show. Yeah. But I do have to say it was a bold one, uh, speaking with its legacy. Lah. It was never as sharply written or innovative as its inspiration, which is Buffy. Buffy was clearly the inspiration for Sabrina. Uh, not not the Melissa Joan Hart Sabrina, but this was pretty much Buffy. <laughs> uh, and and show, showrunner Roberto Aguirre Sacasa tried to make up for the weaknesses uh, by you know making it you know much queerer and much hornier. Um, they never really achieved the right balance. I feel having seen the four seasons, mm-hmm. but I appreciate that he, that they tried. Uh, this is a five out of ten for me. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's. it's yeah, it's okay. Uh, next up, I'm going to go on to Doctor Who's New Year special called Revolution of the Daleks. Uh, Doctor Who, in a British tradition, used to do Christmas Day specials, but throughout Judy Whittaker's uh, tenure, uh, New Year's Day has been has been the day for the specials. Uh. Uh-huh. So this year's entry called Revolution of the Daleks both concludes the cliffhanger upon which the last season ended and acts as a sequel to the 2019 New Year special Resolution, mm-hmm. uh, which ended with the Doctor and her familial crew blowing up the Daleks, uh, the series' signature enemy. Uh, but as you can guess from the title, uh, the Daleks are back. You're never going to get rid of the Daleks. Uh, what I can say is that it is unlikely to be anyone's all-time favorite Doctor Who episode. Yeah. Uh, it won't sit proudly in the number one spot when listicles rank the holiday special. It's a little too navel-gazy for that because it forces uh, you to contemplate you know, the, the, the scars of the Doctor's companions. Uh, you know, the Doctor right now has been stuck in prison for 10 months uh, in a space prison. And, and the episode uh, tackles the questions of why the Doctor is always the center of the, of the universe mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to, you know, her sidekicks, you know, why are they following her? What are their own traumas? Do they have their own lives? Stuff, stuff like that. Should her companion stay or say goodbye? Yeah. So, uh, so even if you don't care to chew over those kind of issues, uh, Revolution of the Daleks is still like a semi-enjoyable hour plus of TV that ultimately chooses to wipe the slate clean. So uh, whenever the new season comes, it is uh, a, a brand new slate. Uh, you, can go, you can go into it blind. Mm. So this, this year, this, yeah, this was fun. But ultimately, inessential viewing. So it's a 5.5 out of 10 for me. Oh, okay. Uh, next up, we're going to be talking about We Can Be Heroes, uh, which is uh, once again directed by Robert Rodriguez. It is a follow-up to his 2005 kids flick, 
the adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Mm-hmm. It's a loose sequel of sorts where the superheroes of Shark Boy and Lava Girl's generation are now super parents with super kids. Uh, the parents are abducted by aliens, so the children must cultivate their own powers in order to save the world. Uh, it has a handmade amateurish green screen lo-fi aesthetic that the, that the original had, you know? So it's kind of charming. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you dig the kind of lo-fi style, you might dig this one. For me, I did not like the original. It was I found it pretty insipid. It lacks the wit and inventiveness of Robert Rodriguez's other, of other kids uh, movie franchise, Spy Kids. Yeah. Um, so, so this one is even less inspired. Um, it's sweet-natured, but it's ultimately forgivable by the numbers and and i think worst of all it's kind of boring for the most part so it's a four out of ten for me oh wow <laughs> uh next up let's jump into st- the latest uh stephen king adaptation mm-hmm. and not not even the not even the first adaptation of this particular title it's the stand uh the stand has been readapted for a new mini series so if you do not know the stand uh, happens after a deadly virus wipes out 99% of the world's population. So there are two groups of survivors that end up picking sides. Uh, one side is the 108-year-old prophet Mother Abigail, who mm-hmm. is played by Whoopi Goldberg, yeah. or the de- uh, demonic Randall Flagg, uh, played by Alexander Skarsgård, uh, in this uh, kind of supernatural battle between good and evil to decide the fate of mankind. That, in a nutshell, is the gist and the, and the, of the... Of the this adaptation of uh, Stephen King's iconic novel, mm-hmm. it takes a unique approach in telling the story in a non-linear fashion. One that introduces viewers not to the pandemic itself, but to the characters, the, the heart and soul of what the story is about. It starts after the plague, not before, and flashes back to the pandemic to get their backstories. Uh, it's a move that may not sit well with some diehard King fans, but it's one that kind of injects, a, I guess, a new dimension to the story. Okay. Um, this version of the story more richly develops some of the key characters from the novel and, and even the previous live-action adaptation with uh, Skarsgård as a particular standout. Uh, unfortunately, it's really hard to get a grasp on what's at stake. So much of what's happening in this world is being told rather than shown. Mm-hmm. Uh, while some of the exposition is wisely left to our own imaginations, most of these like you know comments by characters leave the narrative feeling hollow the series's generous budget keeps the post-apocalyptic america looking convincing but i feel like it's too slow paced and muddled to keep me on the hook yeah the performances are strong the set pieces are cinematic but it doesn't have the depth or sprawl or of king's amazing book which is why i'm only giving this a six out of ten. Oh, okay Okay. Uh, next up, we're going to talk about the live-action adaptation <laughs> of a popular manga slash anime called The Promised Neverland. Uh, it is uh, a wildly popular Prison Break series, uh, which Ice has talked about mm-hmm. before on Ice's Anime Corner. So how does this live-action adaptation fare? Well, it is faithful and it is respectable and it retains the core elements of season one. Uh, it covers the, if you are not, fam- not familiar, it covers the discovery of an orphanage's deadly secret, uh, to, to all the way to the execution of a grand escape plan. Mm. Uh, as the orphans discover, the children are actually being raised to be sacrificial food for demons uh, with the orphanage as a kind of front disguising its purpose as the farming ground. Yeah. Uh, having little to no... Actually, no, there's no narrative deviation from the source material mm-hmm. means that fans will sit through this two-hour film with a strong sense of, hey, we've seen this. <laughs> uh, and and because of the condensed nature of the movie, squeezing 12 episodes 
into one two-hour movie means that we won't get the same emotional impact or development for these characters. Yeah. Uh, I also feel like the casting of the of the characters is a bit weird. They look a bit too old for this. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and such a it's such a cat and paste adaptation that I would suggest that why not you read the manga or why not you watch the anime? Yeah. Uh, it it's a decent attempt, but nowhere near nowhere near the worst anime adaptation ever made. Uh, at the same time, I do have to say that really enough, its major fault is that it sticks too close to the source material. It's a five out of ten for me. Yeah. Uh, so I I did end up catching some of it. Okay. Uh, you know, despite the fact that I I had a feeling that it wouldn't be great. Um, mm. so here's the thing, right? Uh, you can't squeeze an entire season into two and a half hours. Yeah. Not possible. Right. And, um, that's one of its faults. Uh, and there's also something incredibly difficult to replicate when your actors aren't kids. Yeah. Right. There's, a, there's so much more terror. Now, um, as, as of when we are recording this, uh, season two has just started. Uh, we're mm. a couple of episodes in, and it is terrifying and mm. terrifyingly good. Uh, so, like, I'm not surprised at all if you're giving it just a 5 out of 10. But we'll talk more about that uh, on the next genre equality. Definitely. Uh, so, yeah, I would encourage you to either read the manga or watch the anime. Like, so, you know, why settle for a condensed version of the tale, even though it is okay? Yeah. Uh, yeah, but why settle for okay when, you know, the, the pristine, great original is there for you to watch? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, um, let's move on to Equinox, which is a new Danish series on Netflix that is actually based on a podcast. Oh. Uh, so this six-part supernatural thriller is a suspense mystery story exploring uh, folklore uh, and mythology. Uh, it follows Astrid, who is a 30-ish recently separated mother of one who is also a journalist. Mm -hmm. So one evening, a disturbing call comes in prompting uh, a trip back home to Copenhagen to reinvestigate a tragedy that destroyed her family when she was a girl. So flashbacks uh, place us in the summer of 1999 when Astrid's older sister Ida disappeared into thin air along with a busload of students who had just finished secondary school. So this entire bus load of students has disappeared. Uh, here's the thing. Little Astrid wasn't surprised when the cops came knocking the bad news because she has foreseen the calamity in her dreams. Uh, now her visions have started up again and and that shocking phone call is one of... Uh, uh, the shocking phone call is actually from one of the three students who were on that bus mm -hmm. who have somehow... Uh, who somehow didn't vanish and have been scarred by their appearance, you know. Uh, so they're still out there uh, harboring secrets that Astrid's mind might be able to unlock. So begins one of those like rabbit hole yarns where someone with supernatural vision seems to seems delusional to her loved ones. You, you, know, you know what I mean? You've yeah. seen that thunder before. Uh, they, they doubt her, but then she goes on this mission. What the Equinox does really well is explore the place of folklore and mythology within today's society. Mm -hmm. It revolves around the folktale of Ostara, who is a goddess of spring. Uh, and this, this goddess obsesses uh, several characters. The series is uh, dotted with signifiers and symbols of, of the tale. You know, there are rabbits and hares in the number 21, always lurking somewhere in the background. It soon becomes clear that through a retelling of this folktale, Equinox is able, or is at least attempting, to dive into more philosophical thinking such as determinism versus free will and fantasy versus reality. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a captivating mystery that uses uh, the supernatural to capture the different facets of grief and loss. Uh, the ending feels rushed uh, and the plot makes some leaps that feel, huh? You know, a bit unearned. Yeah. Um, 
overall, it's a fun binge. It's only six episodes. It's solid, real solid stuff, but not spectacular. It's a 6.5 out of 10 for me. Oh, okay. Uh, next up, I'm going to move on to Shadow in the Cloud, which is a new indie film uh, starring Chloe Grace Moretz, who plays a female World War II pilot traveling with top-secret documents on a B-17 flying fortress who encounters an evil presence on board the flight, which is a gremlin. Um, Shadow in the Cloud kind of kicks off with an amusing kind of Looney Tunes-style cartoon about a lazy, drunken World War II pilot blaming, you know, quote-unquote gremlins for all his problems. It's a bit of like a, an urban legend that, you know, pilots like to blame gremlins as, you know, for, for the issues. Uh, it's kind of cheeky and funny, and it, it starts things off on the right foot. Uh, also, I thought um, this movie is going to be fun, you know. Uh, but spoiler alert, it's it's really not. Uh, there are some attempts to have fun here, but there is a long, there are so many long, impossible action beats. Uh, okay, one character actually falls out of the plane only to be blasted back into the plane by an explosion below. <laughs> and, and, and the explosion doesn't hurt the person in the slightest. It's an excruciatingly stupid movie, and that's the nicest thing I can say oh, about God. it. <laughs> uh, yeah, at, at, 83 minute, at 83 minutes, the best thing I can say is that it's over quickly. Uh, it's a 2 out of 10 for me. Wow. Okay. okay. Yeah. Next up, uh, let's talk about Outside the Wire, which is on Netflix, actually. It stars Anthony Mackie. Mm-hmm. It's a new Netflix sci-fi movie which you may have heard of. It's set in the near future, where a drone pilot is sent into a war zone and finds himself paired up with a top-secret android officer on a mission to stop a nuclear attack. It is, essentially, if you watch it, it's Training Day meets Terminator. <laughs> think, think Training Day, yeah. but, but Denzel Washington is Terminator. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is the premise. The thing is, right, it has none of the craft or intelligence or fun or style of either Training Day or Terminator. You know, um, Mackie's performance, for better or worse, is... Eh? He plays plays more or less the same character that he usually does. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. uh, uh, Yeah, this movie is very flat. It's very dour. It has lazy writing Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very uninspired. It's kind of a snooze fest, to be honest. I don't know whether you caught this, but I'm I'm giving this a 3 out of 10. I I caught 10 minutes of it and I turned it off. Uh, I think I was still trying to recover for what Mackie did to... uh, uh, Altered Carbon. Altered Carbon, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Altered Carbon. <laughs> so I was just yeah. like, no, no, this is too close to home. I'm not going to bother with this. Which I don't know if that necessarily bodes well or not well for Win- Falcon and Winter Soldier, but we'll see. Maybe Sebastian Stan can pull him through. In, in fairness to Mackie, like, the stuff that he's filled in can be attributed to a failure of writing mm. also. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, but at the same time, also he is not leading man material. Uh, I have seen flashes of quite you know good acting from him, particularly yeah. in a in a Black Mirror episode. Uh, striking. Um, okay, striking that I really enjoyed. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it depends on what he is the type of actor that can. He's functional. Uh, he's a functional actor. Yeah. Solid. He can deliver what you want him to deliver, but he cannot elevate material. Mm. Yeah, I have to agree with you on that. Yeah, like he's good enough to like if you want him to. If, if the script is good, the direction is good, he can deliver. But if it's not, he can't elevate it. Like, he's not like a Pacino type, you know. Or, or he's not a great actor. He's just... He, he does what he's told. Like. He's, a, he's a workman-like actor. Mm, yeah. 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 Uh, so yeah, that's it for quick hits. Uh, any of them that uh, you're interested in seeing? I'm definitely going to catch Last and First Man. I think it, the, it's, it's fascinating. It's been on my list for a while. I, I think actually since uh, it came out. 
Um, yeah. Big fan of Johan Johansson, and I'm so curious as to, you know, what, what his final, what he was working on right before he passed. Um, Correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the visuals of Last and First Man clearly intended to be for a concert, for a live performance. Mm. So if you come into it thinking of it like as a sci-fi film meets concert film, yeah. Uh, you will come away with very impressed and very immersed. Uh, it is, this is an intentional sci-fi concert film, unlike Tenet, which I treated it like a concert sci-fi film because <laughs> I had... Yeah. 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 Um, so, I mean, out of everything, like that that seems the most interesting. I was curious about the stand, uh, but mm. I'm not sure if, if I'm going to spend the time on that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, that, that's basically it, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Last and First Man, a good recommendation. I would urge you guys to... If you live in Singapore, uh, you can find it on the projector. Uh, if not, it's available on VOD. So, uh, yeah, go support the late Johan Johansson. This is pretty much his last work. Uh, so, yeah, you should you should definitely check it out. Uh, finally, I'm going to delve into the pull list, where I, this time I will recommend two new comics because I just realized, looking back at 2020, I did not talk about a single comic. It was very book-heavy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yep. I, yeah, I was going. I was going. I was rediscovering books uh, in 2020. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, that that reflected in my pool list. I was thought, okay, I did read some comics in the meantime. So I'm gonna, I'm just going to shout out a couple of two 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 comics in particular that I really enjoyed. Firstly, is a comic called "We Only Find Them When They Are Dead." Uh, so in "We Only Find Them When They Are Dead" by L. Ewing, the human race is dying out fast, but the gods will save it, not through divine action. No, but because some gods have died, so we are going to deep space to harvest dead celestial bodies as last resources for a depleted galaxy. Oh. You know, we're actually mining dead gods, you know, yeah. for food, for sustenance, for fuel. So it's set in the year 2367. Uh, it's by Boom Studios and it's a full-on Jack Kirby cosmic sci-fi kind of thing that kind of takes the climate crisis to extremes. It imagines a future where humans have to literally strip mine giant space corpses to stay alive. Uh, it's also the first creator-owned series by L. Ewing, who is kind of a, a star writer at Marvel Comics, uh, alongside uh, Simon DiMio, who is an exceptional uh, artist, primarily known for Power Rangers comics. So they've proven that they can bring excitement and drama to to and fun to corporate IP. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this new series gives them uh, an opportunity to push even further without editorial restrictions of a Marvel or Power Rangers and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's basically an inverse Galactus situation. Uh, here, we devour the space gods, not the other way around. Uh, it's it's uh, We harvest their clothing, their flesh to survive, and, and now that their old worlds are gone and no longer viable, we're just forced to do this. La. So corporations have the tightest grip on resources, and there are too many ship uh, there are too many ships mining too few corpses. Uh, and we follow a guy called Georges Malik, uh, the, the captain of the Vihan 2, which is an autopsy ship with a crew of four that is barely scraping by. Mm-hmm. But Georges has a plan to escape their current state of desperation uh, to find the first living god. Uh, so uh, this comic is uh, accomplishes the, the tricky feat of being massive in scale while still being like intimate and grounded and focusing on the mundane elements of mining life. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of evokes really Scott's alien in its world building. 
keeping you know focus on blue collar workers who each have their own function on the crew. There's the captain, there's the coroner, the quartermaster, the engineer. They're all working together on a routine operation that helps the reader get situated uh, situated with the fantastic environment. Uh, there's a constant sense of discovery, you know, starting with the revelation of the dead god and and continuing through. Uh, the mining process, including what happens to a, if a ship, uh, if a ship go, goes goes missing in the in the God's territory, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's 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 great, you know. And then you know, what happens when a God's body hasn't been formally claimed, you know, uh, territorial disputes and things like that. Uh, the arts also is great. It gives a propul- a propulsive motion to to the proceedings. Dimeo avoids you know conventional layouts. She places like. Uh, panels on different angles that give a page a dynamic energies no matter what is happening. Uh, when he does, when the artist does incorporate like a structured grid, you know, like the normal grid, mm-hmm. uh, he does a, a, for a sequence showing the autopsy of the ship's uh, crew extracting or harvesting the flesh of of a god's cheek. Uh, it creates a completely different rhythm. So I like like the different rhythms that the different panels uh, gives this comic. Um, this sequence is uh, an intentional spotlight on the musicality of the comic book. Storytelling, mm-hmm. like it's it's kind of like this this five by four grid functioning like a time signature, and you can change the time signature to evoke different pacing, whether it's slow, whether it's fast, whether it's meticulous, oh. whether it's exciting. Uh, yeah, a gorgeous book from beginning to end. The line work is slick and detailed. It doesn't sacrifice any personality. So Dimeo designs these like distinct characters and spaceships that make you want to see more about this world. Uh, wonderfully written, wonderfully drawn comic book. Uh, one of my favorite discoveries of last year uh, of 2020. So uh, we only find them when you're dead. When they're dead, is an eight out of ten for me. Mm. Uh, still, still ongoing. So do check it out. Sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, next up, uh, and finally, I'm be talking about probably the most hyped uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> comic that has been in a while. Yeah. It is called The Last Ronin, and I'm sure you've all heard of it. Have you heard of The Last Ronin? Yeah, I, I, I've seen a couple of panels in and there. Yeah, yeah. So there have been numerous comic stories that tell the tale of familiar heroes in their later grizzled years, you know, like Old Man Logan. They've gone through the ringer of time, uh, and time again is and an old age is, is starting to take the toll on them. And, and now it's time for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to meet their dark future. Uh, with TMNT, The Last Ronin, Kevin Eastman and, and Peter Lard are, are back together to tell a story about the final turtle avenging his fallen brothers. So there's only one turtle left. Mm. The other three are dead. So it takes place in this post-apocalyptic future where this last Ninja Turtle journal journeys back to the last remnants of civilization in order to exact revenge on the descendants of a ma- of the man who took everything from him. Unfortunately for the titular last Ronin, the man isn't just Shredder's grandson. He is the sole ruler of humanity. He's like the king of the world. Mm. So he plans on using his considerable power for the sole purpose of ending what his grandfather started, uh, killing the Ninja Turtles. So this last surviving turtle's identity is kept a mystery. Yeah. Until the end of the first issue, he wears a black bandana. So so the 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 book instantly captures the spirit of you know the you, you know like TNMT was essentially a Daredevil kind of knockoff. You know? Yeah, pretty much. You I know, mean, the, it's the same. It's the same like liquid. Um, yeah. yeah, same serum and all that. Mm-hmm. The, the the hand, the foot, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this this once again returns TMNT to very like Daredevil inspired 
ter- ter- territory with like a lot of darkness looming on the horizon. So even though this is the future, the familiar grit of early TMNT stories is very clear. Mm-hmm. The Last Ronin is extremely dark. It's very, very dark. Um, if you're only familiar with the turtles from, from TV, movies, <laughs> things like that, you might not be ready for this. If you if you have been reading turtles comics for a while, then you're you're familiar with the tone. Yeah. Uh, but thankfully, it's also kind of filled with some levity. There are jokes because the last Ronin, whoever he is, I'm not going to spoil it for you, uh, sees the ghost of the fallen turtles uh, you know, as ghosts around him. Lah. So they're, they're always specters around him, throwing comedic jabs uh, and making fun of uh, whoever he is. And he never lets the story fall too far into the darkness. Lah. Mm. Uh, you know, the ghosts are imaginary. Uh, they're funny, but it adds an extra level of poignance to the humor, you know, because they're not there. Um, nevertheless, the, the, the balance of, uh, you know, the writing team brings to the story allows the violence and the sadness to I, I never get gratuitous ever. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's dark, but it's never too overly dark. Um, and, and it never loses the heart that the Ninja Turtles books are known for. The artwork by, by Eastman and Esau and Isaac uh, Escorza is particularly praiseworthy. The, the art is undoubtedly kind of channeling Frank Miller's style uh, while still having a unique identity of its own. All in all, this is, this is, I think, a really great, perfect, emotional climax to a long-running, long-beloved comic franchise. Mm-hmm. It's a 7.5 out of 10 for me. Wow, nice. Yep. Nice. Yeah, definitely going to check those two out. Yeah, yeah. I, I have some of my... I, I have not read TMNT in a long time. Since oh, I was same, here. same here. I, I, I don't know where those comics are. I used to I have... Mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's been like eons since that. But like Last Ronin has been getting a lot of hype since it came out. So I'm 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 glad that you enjoyed it. And I'm probably yeah. hands on that. Uh particularly because you know Kevin Eastman, uh, the creator of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, has said that this is the climax to the story. Like this is the end of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm. Uh and, and what a dark, satisfying ending it is. Uh and such an intriguing concept too, you know, the whole like who is the last Ronin? You know, you will find out at the end of the first issue. Yeah, but it, it's a major reveal, uh, which which I, I, of course I wouldn't I wouldn't <laughs> tell anyone. Yeah. So yeah, uh, those are the things that uh that I've, I will recommend comics wise. Uh, next month we have one very 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 big title to talk about. Yeah. Uh, we're headliner, so to speak. Uh, next month we'll be delving into uh the MCU's bizarre, wonderful, and weird. <laughs> Um, love letter to classic sitcoms in Wonder Vision. Uh, yeah, that's that's our main topic, and I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, and Isa will be back with Isa's enemy corner as well. Uh, what are some of the highlights that people can look forward to next month? Um, for anime corner, I'm gonna split it into kind of like two broad categories. There's a ton of returning series that we have talked about before. Uh, my current favorites, I I just mentioned Promise Neverland season two, um, mm-hmm. Lock Horizon, which I've talked about before, is also back. Um, so is um, Slime is back for another season so there's a ton of stuff I'll be talking about you know just where the characters are at and whether or not it's still worth watching as well as a few um, new uh, series that I found really really kind of enjoyable uh, you know from your kind of like typical shonen stuff to some pretty offbeat uh, workplace comedies that uh, I-, I found hilarious uh, recently uh, but yeah, definitely a lot of um, stuff to cover uh, recommendation-wise, which is surprising considering that it has felt pretty lean over the last few seasons. 
Uh, yep. But having all of them come, uh, all like it's basically everything from the last eight seasons or so, all the stuff that we've loved, they're all coming back at the same time, right? So that's why yeah. this season is kind of stacked. Um, but yeah, so uh, we'll be talking about that. Um, and, you know, uh, we'll, we'll talk a bit about, uh, Hits and I will talk a bit about um, Selves at Work and the differences between the two series that are out right now. Um, mm, just, Cold, Cold Black and original show. Yeah, and it is uh, fascinating. I think we will have quite a bit to talk about um, in terms of the tone and how different it can be despite the premise being the same. Um, yep. and, and, you know, we'll, we'll have a pretty good time of it. Yeah, uh, and if you wanna, you know, tune in next month, uh, you will you will enjoy me shitting on a show called The Watch, which uh, which is uh, a Discworld spinoff. Um, I'm not I'm 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 not like like Hardy, you know, a big Terry Pratchett fan or whatever, but I will shit on the show. Perhaps not as hard as Star Trek because you know, yeah, yeah, I just not as invested <laughs> in Discworld. But the watch is an easily one of the shittiest show I've I've, I've seen in a long time. Uh, there are a couple of like indie movie standouts that I want to talk about, including the Wanting Mare and Little Fish. Uh, Saint Maud is something that I'm gonna give. Uh, I'm gonna send to Isa to let him watch. Is uh, an an A twenty four horror, mm. uh, which was supposed to be released in March of last year, but has been pushed to now because of COVID. So we'll we'll check that out. Uh, the new show, um, new newest CW show is Superman and Lois. I'll be talking about that as well. Uh, and uh, the Studio Ghibli's, I don't know whether this is wise, uh, intriguing. I would say intriguing. Um, uh, yeah. Journey into CG animation in Earwig and the Witch is coming out next month also. So we'll, I'll check that out. Yeah. It does. I don't know. It doesn't look good. <laughs> I, don't I, I don't know, man. I, I I'll give it a chance. Yeah. Just because it's Ghibli and they haven't, you know, like it's rare for Ghibli to have missteps, right? Yeah. But from what I've seen, it's I don't know. Man. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it does not look great at all. Yeah, so uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it a fair chance. Yeah. yeah. Tune in next month to see what we think about that. Yeah. There's also like this... Have you seen the South Korean show? I don't know if there's a show or movie called Space Sweepers uh, on Netflix. I, the trailer looked really good. Uh, yeah. I saw the trailer. I've actually uh, put it on my list. I haven't watched nice. it yet. Um, yeah. I mean, like definitely, I think like uh, between the stuff we're doing for Behold over the next couple of weeks, I should have time to, to catch that. It doesn't look like a very long watch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Space Sweepers is something that's going to be on Quick Hits, but if Isa has seen it as well, we both can discuss it. Uh, yeah, it's actually only coming out next week, I believe. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, it looks good. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen a South Korean sci-fi in, in a bit. Uh, so, yeah, that's it for next uh, month's uh, genre equality. Uh, for the upcoming Behold, it's uh, kind of specially themed. We have, yeah. some we have a Valentine's Day special coming up as well as a Chinese New Year special. So, keep a lookout for that. Not going to reveal what our favorite... Uh, <laughs> Um, romance slash Chinese language movies uh, but you know uh, they will be in the title when, whenever they're released yep. so uh, until then this has been Hit Zero I'm Aisa uh, goodbye guys oh.